morning everybody. The first reading this morning is John chapter 15 from verses 1 to 8 and if you're using the Blue Church Bibles that's page 762. So that's John chapter 15 from verses 1 to 8 and as we come to God's word we remember that uh, just as the word goes out from the Lord's mouth and will not return to him empty, but will accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sends it. So John chapter 15, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. The second reading is taken from 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 27 and can be found on page 869 of the Church Bible. Page 869, 1 John 2, verses 15 to 27. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? 
It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. We thank God for his open word. Thank you, uh, Alice and Lisa, very much indeed. Well, let's uh, keep our Bibles open, and uh, I'm going to ask the Lord to help us understand this, uh, this important passage. Heavenly Father, you have promised to bless all your children with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we thank you that often as we gather here on Sunday mornings, we sense that the windows of heaven have been opened and that you are pouring down upon us grace upon grace. And so we pray that as we come to your word and look for the help of your Holy Spirit, that all of us may be conscious of the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may sense he knows us through and through and that being known by him, we may come to know him better and love him more. Amen. What time is it? Uh, it's one of the most frequently asked questions, isn't it, in Western culture. Uh, whether we ask the question out loud or only subconsciously, it's never very far from our minds. Time, of course, is something that we measure by the, the watch on our wrists, uh, or if you're under 25, by the app on your cell phone. But time isn't simply something that we measure. Uh, time is also a ruthless master. Uh, so when you leave the house in the morning without your watch, there's a sense in which you feel you aren't properly dressed. Uh, and how often each day do we find ourselves asking, you know, I really must keep an eye on the time. Yes, there is a sense in which we are slaves to time. But what actually is time? It's something that we think we understand, but if we try and define it, it's not actually quite so easy. Um, Augustine, the early church father, says that somebody once asked him this question, what is time? 
And Augustine paused and replied, well, I thought I knew what it was until you asked me the question. If Augustine wasn't sure and he needed to think about it, well, maybe we do too. Whatever else we could say about it, um, people have always agreed that time is relative. We all experience it differently. Uh, So as a child, uh, you sometimes went uh, on a journey with your parents in the car. Uh, They were sitting in the front, chatting away and enjoying the view. And as far as they were concerned, the time passed quickly. But there you were, sitting in the back. Uh, You couldn't see the view. Uh, You didn't really understand what your parents were talking about. And uh, after ten minutes, it seemed to you like you'd already been in the car for ten hours. Why is that? Or why is it that spending five minutes talking with one person sometimes seems too long, but with other people, two hours isn't actually long enough? I realise, of course, that the same rule applies to sermons. Uh, That five minutes from one preacher is actually too long, Uh, Well, 45 minutes from another preacher is not long enough. But you know, what's really interesting is that you can have two people sitting in the same church, listening to the same sermon from the same preacher, and yet you can have these two completely different reactions. These two people might actually be sitting in St Barnabas this morning. They might be on either side of you, I don't know. Now, now why is that? What is the difference between these two people? Well, in our passage this morning, one of the things that John is teaching is that Christians have a very distinct sense of time. If you don't have it, If your sense of time is just the same as somebody who isn't a Christian, well then, alarm bells ought to be ringing. You can see why this is so if you come with me to verse 18, where John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. Now you remember last week in the poem in verses 12 to 14 we discovered that that phrase, dear children, is the way that the elderly apostle addresses his Christian readers. They've had their sins forgiven, he said. They know the Father. But he wants them to stay spiritually healthy. And so in verse 18 he says to all Christians, this is the last hour, you know what that means, Please keep your eye on the time. Now, what's he talking about? Well, obviously, he's not talking about what's going to happen in the next 60 minutes. No, he's talking about the hour on God's clock between the first and second coming of Jesus. For Christians, of course, uh, it's a joyful time. It's a time when we're we're looking forward eagerly to the day that Jesus returns. Uh, we're, We're looking forward to it with joyful anticipation. But if it's a joyful time, for Christians it's also a dangerous time. 
Elsewhere, the Bible warns us that the last hour is a time of intense spiritual conflict. And John's concern here is to encourage every Christian to recognise that and to know how to deal with it. Now, so far in our series, uh, we've discovered that John is writing to help his readers enjoy the best possible fellowship with God. And he's taught us that we can know whether we have this fellowship with God or not by three tests or three proofs. Uh, The first is that if you find yourself wanting to obey his commands, John says that's a sign that you already have this precious fellowship with God. The second that we were looking at last week is that if you find yourself loving your brothers and sisters at church, wanting to get to know them, wanting to spend time with them, wanting to build them up, well, that visible fellowship with one another is proof of your invisible fellowship with the Father. And now in our passage this morning, there is the third proof. And the third proof is if you find yourself understanding the truth of the gospel and being fully committed to it in your heart, well, says John, that is proof that you have fellowship with the Father. You're a real Christian. Now, I know when I say that, um, it sounds so easy. But actually, John wants us to recognise that, that in fact, it won't be easy at all because we're living in the last hour. It's a time when every Christian is going to be under pressure. And if we want to avoid harming the precious fellowship we have with God and with one another, well, we're going to need to take certain precautions. So, what are the dangers and what are the precautions that we must take? Well, first, says John, we have to distinguish between two kinds of love. Two kinds of love. Verses 15 to 17. In fact, you can find both of these loves in verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, so there's loving the world... And there's loving the Father, and John says you can't love them both. Of course, we're beginning to understand already what it means to love the Father. John has already said quite a bit about it. But what does John mean when he says, do not love the world? Because in his Gospel, he tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for it. So, are are we not to follow God's example? Does he mean, perhaps, don't love the nations and don't do missionary work? Uh, Should Alice perhaps be cancelling her trip to South America because we're only going to focus on the church here at St Barnabas? But that can't be right, can it? Because, of course, in the Great Commission, Jesus said exactly the opposite. 
Or does it mean, perhaps, um, don't care about the physical world, don't get into environmental care? But again, that can't be right, can it? Because God created it, uh, he commissioned man to care for it back in Genesis 1. And Paul says in Romans 1 that the physical world reflects God's uh, divine nature and eternal power. And for Christians not to care about it would go against all of that. Or does it perhaps mean don't enjoy the good things that God has put into the world like marriage or, or food? But again, of course, Scripture says these are, are good gifts from a loving Father. And not to enjoy them would be thankless and totally contrary to God's design. Now, what is the world in this passage? Well, in verse 16, John tells us that he's talking about three things. He describes them as the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Now, that's slightly old-fashioned language. It's not the way we talk today. But it's a picture, isn't it, of any culture which thinks and advertises and plans and campaigns and lives as if Christ is completely irrelevant. And in that kind of a culture, instead of thanking and praising God for his good gifts and sharing them with other people, God is completely forgotten and all that's left is craving, lust and boasting. Now you see, what John is saying is that one of the characteristics of life in the last hour is that more and more people will be drawn into that world, into that anti-God way of thinking and living. And it's a very real danger for all Christians. And it's a warning that's repeated many times throughout the New Testament. We've got time for one cross-reference. Keep a finger in 1 John. And please will you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 on page 845. 2 Timothy 3, page 845. Now this is uh, the Apostle Paul's portrait of the same period of time. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, Paul says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, the last days there is Paul talking about the same thing as John when John talks about the last hour, okay? In the last days, people will be, what? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, Paul says, have nothing to do with them. 
Now what I want us to notice there is that loving the world, or can we use the word worldliness, worldliness is not really about the things that we do or the places that we visit. It's actually about the attitude of our hearts. Our hearts are either set on God or they're set on the world. And it's impossible to love them both. So the question must be, how can we avoid getting drawn into the anti-God world? Well, come back to 1 John, will you? Because rather than giving us kind of a naked command that we've just got to go off and uh, obey as best we can, no, John gives us two excellent reasons why it makes no sense whatsoever to give in to loving the world. And the first has to do with origin. Origin. In verse 16, John tells us that love of the world does not come from the Father. In other words, these worldly desires are not actually Christian. God hasn't given them to you. If you're in fellowship with God, then the truth is you're going to actually feel rather uncomfortable with these things. How does that work as a motivating reason? Let me give you uh, an illustration from a totally different sphere of life. Imagine for a moment uh, that you're a vegetarian. You're serious about it, you're committed to it. But it so happens that you also like jelly. No one's ever told you, however, that jelly is made from the bones of cows and horses. And then one day, out of the blue, you receive an email from the South African Vegetarian Society and it says, do not love jelly or the things that come from jelly. I mean, that's trifle, things that we enjoy at Christmas. Because jelly does not come from vegetables, but from ground-up cow's bones. Now, there you are, vegetarian. As you read that, you're starting to feel rather uncomfortable. You didn't know that. But now you do know. And because you know, you say to yourself, well, hang on a moment, I'm a vegetarian. I actually don't want to eat jelly anymore. Now, I know it's a slightly trivial illustration, but that's the kind of appeal that John is making here. He's saying, you need to know that these worldly desires don't come from God. And that difference in origin is absolutely everything. It really matters. I mean, do you really want to go after the lifestyle that belongs to the anti-God party? Do you really want to do that? I mean, worldliness, of course, is, is terribly seductive. Uh, The media know precisely how to make you and I scratch in places that were never itching before. But you see, if we can actually unmask these worldly desires and see where they come from, well then maybe we won't want them. That's what he's saying. 
But then John gives us a second reason, and you'll find it in verse 17. And this reason doesn't have to do with origin, it's to do with duration. He tells us that the world and its desires are passing away. Now, because uh, here at St Barnabas we're well-taught Christians, we already actually know that the world is passing away. We know that. But John says that the anti-God desires that come with it are also passing away. And John says, look, why chase after them now if in a hundred years' time you won't actually care? In childhood, I guess most of us went through phases when we we set our hearts on a particular toy. Uh, For me, it was a particular model boat. I got this fixation about having this particular model boat. Now, I don't know what it was for you. Whatever it was, we can all remember that wanting this thing occupied our hearts and minds constantly. We were constantly nagging our parents to get us one. But you see, now, when we look back, that wanting seems vaguely ridiculous, even rather embarrassing. And John's point, you see, is that there are countless equivalents at every stage of life. Things that we crave and pursue now while leaving Jesus, well, not out of the picture altogether, but definitely in second place. Of course, the the, the list of physical things that uh, people crave as God's substitutes or God replacements is obvious. You don't need me to elaborate on that. But of course, it doesn't have to be things, does it? Uh, It it can be family. It can be taking God's good gift of family, putting those relationships first, and then pushing God ever so quietly into second place. Or it can be work. It can be taking God's good gift of work from God's hand and getting so completely caught up in it that there's no time or energy left for God and his people. Now, of course, these alternatives at the time, they seem to be the answer to all our problems. They seem to be so important. But John says, my dear child... These desires are passing away. In a hundred years' time, you'll wonder why you ever made them so much more important than Jesus. And be careful, because you might even have thrown away your fellowship with God. So friends, we've got to know the difference between loving the world and loving the Father, and we've got to take action accordingly. But in the last hour, John warns us that there's also a second danger. And that is, we must distinguish between two kinds of people. Verses 18 to 23. Come with me to verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. So here's the first group, the Antichrists. But of course the language is uh, so extreme that there is a danger we might understand what John actually means. Uh, After all, 
Uh, The only place that the word Antichrist appears in the Bible is in the letters of John. And uh, even then, it only appears five times in four verses. So we haven't got a great deal of Bible data to work with. And of course, to make matters worse, the the fixation of the, the film industry with paranormal phenomena means that whenever we hear the word Antichrist, well, uh, we, we think, don't we, of mythical, repulsive monsters. But actually, I think that John is warning us of something very human, very down-to-earth, something, in fact, that is right under our noses. Why do I say that? Well, that word anti in the word Antichrist can mean one of two things. It can either mean the opposite of or it can mean instead of. So, in history, um, taking the first of those, some people have have understood Antichrist to be the complete opposite of Christ. And they've then gone on to identify Antichrist with the worst tyrants in history. Uh, Martin Luther was never much of a one to mince his words, and he was in the habit of referring to the Pope of his day as Antichrist. But the context here in 1 John strongly suggests that John is actually going with the second of those meanings because I think what he's saying is that Antichrist here refers to false or alternative Christs, if I can put it that way. What he's saying is that there were people around with such seriously deficient beliefs about Christ that what they were actually worshipping was someone instead of Christ. Do you get the idea? Someone completely different. And John says that one of the dangers of life in the last hour is that we Christians have to contend with people like this. Who on earth are they? How will we recognise them? How will we know how to deal with them? Well, John tells us four important things about them. First, in verse 18, he tells us that there will be plenty of them. And he says it in a very striking way. First, he says that Antichrist is coming. That's, of course, a reference to the devil. But then he says, many antichrists have come. Now, I think the connection there is that the devil is exercising his influence even now through these people and there are crowds of them, plenty of them. Now, we know, don't we, that one troublemaker is bad enough, but a whole crowd of troublemakers can make a great deal of noise and can be very intimidating. So that's the first thing he says. Second, in verse 19, he says that these people arose from within the church. And you see there, he says, they went out from us. So they've been sitting in the pews for, for months, maybe even for years. No one ever imagined that they would turn out to be troublemakers. We never suspected it for one moment. 
The third hallmark of the Antichrist is in verse 26. And John says that rather than just sort of going quietly, they were trying to draw others away, to lead them astray. And I think the idea is not just spiritually, but literally as well. In other words, they felt they had to justify their actions by encouraging other people to follow their example. But fourth, and of course this is the most serious of all, these people had a deficient or defective view of Jesus. In verse 22, John says, they denied that Jesus is the Christ. Now that doesn't tell us a great deal, so in order to find out what they believed, will you just turn on a couple of pages to John's second letter, page 872. To John, page 872, verse 7. Verse 7. John says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now I want you to think about this for a moment because of course if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh what you're actually doing is you're denying the incarnation, aren't you? So cancel Christmas, no Christmas this year. And of course, if you deny the incarnation, you're actually denying the atonement, aren't you? Because if Jesus didn't actually become a human being, well, he couldn't represent us and he can't be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, I know, we may not know people who've done precisely that. But the principle still holds. John is warning us that the most deadly hallmark of Antichrist is a distorted view of Jesus. It's an understanding of him that is different in content or in emphasis from the biblical portrait. It's the person, isn't it, who worships Jesus the legalist or Jesus the life coach or Jesus the financial advisor or the worldly Jesus or Jesus the freedom fighter. I mean, you'll be able to make up your own. There are plenty of them. Now, I come back to one John because obviously the threat from these antichrists is very real and it's extremely serious. So, how can we hope to stand firm against it? That's the question. And the answer is wonderfully simple because there's another group of people in the church. Come with me to verse 20. John says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. Now again, I don't want you to misunderstand John. 
And you see, he's not there talking about uh, a secret club uh, or a special guru in the church who's got an anointing that nobody else has got. That's not it at all. Now, John is simply describing the gift of the Holy Spirit that is the privilege of every Christian. And this anointing enables every ordinary Christian with no special theological training whatsoever to recognise defective teaching about Christ. That's actually what John means in verse 27. Have a look at it. In verse 27 he says, As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anybody to teach you. Now, that doesn't mean uh, let's sack the pastor and um, you know what we'll do is just do Bible study by ourselves at home. He's not saying that. It just means that when you hear a distorted picture of Jesus, uh, either by what these people say or by the way they live, well, you know straight away that it's false. You don't actually need to come and ask me about it because the Holy Spirit's telling you it's a lie. Now, I hope you can see what John's doing here. It's very important. He's warning us yet again that we are responsible both for what we hear and for what we do with what we hear. And he's saying, you see, that if, we're, if you're listening to defective teaching about Jesus, but you're refusing to listen to the Holy Spirit when he warns you against it, the danger is you might actually end up in the same camp as the Antichrists. And you don't even realise it's happened. So we've got to learn to distinguish, haven't we, between two different kinds of love, two different kinds of people. And thirdly, John says, now, in the last hour, we have one urgent task. And that task is in verses 24 to 27. It can be summarised, actually, in just one word. It's the word remain. Verse 24. See that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. Now that word remain is actually a favourite word of the Apostle John. Um, it means to, to make a settled home somewhere. And John uses it five times in the closing verses of this chapter because it is the urgent task facing every Christian. In fact, our eternal security depends on it. So, how can the Christian possibly hope to stay spiritually safe in face of the incessant onslaught of worldliness and endless defective teaching about Jesus? How can he possibly hope to stay spiritually safe? Answer, we have to ensure that the Apostle's message about Jesus remains in us. He's talking about the Gospel. The Holy Spirit 
has opened our hearts and our minds to believe it, now we've got to go on deepening our understanding of it. We've got to make the Gospel the top priority in our lives. We've got to make our home in it. And this, of course, is the third of the three proofs that John gives to us in his letter. If we remain in the Gospel, that's proof we have fellowship with God. Now, obviously, this is just an introduction to what John's going to say. He's going to have a great deal more to say about this third proof in uh, the, the weeks ahead. But this morning, as we, as we close, I want to suggest what remaining in the Gospel, or remaining in Jesus, might mean for you and me practically. Uh, it comes from a book entitled Secrets of the Spirit, by a man called Ray Steadman. Uh, it's on the back of the question sheet if you want to follow it. And he's quoting, uh, commenting there, I should say, uh, not on 1 John, but on John chapter 15, the passage that Alice read for us a bit earlier. But what he said might equally be said about the message of our passage this morning. This is what he writes. When our Lord says, remain in me, He's talking about the will, about the choices, the decisions we make. We must decide to do things which expose ourselves and keep ourselves in contact with him. This is what it means to remain in him. We have been placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now we must choose to maintain that relationship by the decisions we make. Decisions to expose ourselves to his word in order to learn about him and to relate to him in prayer. Decisions to relate to other believers in community life experiences. That is, bearing one another's burdens and confessing our faults and sharing in fellowship with one another. This is how we learn about and see Christ in one another. All of this is designed to help us relate to him, to remain in him. If we do that, we are fulfilling this active, necessary decision of the will to obey his word, to do what he says, and to stay in touch with him. May God grant us the grace to do just that. Shall we pray? Well, Heavenly Father, as we read this passage, we realise that it is a massive wake-up call, uh, one that we very badly need to hear, and so do many others. Please help us, Lord, to remember that we are living in the last hour, a time of joyful celebration, certainly, but also a time of real spiritual danger. Please help us to be fully committed to the Gospel to remain in the gospel with all our strength so that we 
might not be led astray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.